Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person who had the most amazing breakfast um, in my box garden. Um, Japanese eggplant, they're up. And so, and, and then I've had a patch of walking onions for a couple decades. They're little onion things, the perennials. Um, pepper plant, we bring the pepper plant in in the winter. So anyhow, I just go out and grab some of those things, and I grab some mushroom and garlic and um, some uh, oil from the fridge, and I just saute them. It took me a few minutes and I put them in some leftover lettuce from yesterday and it was wonderful. And, you know, gathering that food um, and eating is as a sacred experience. Um, but the more and the more I grow my own food, the more I realize how dependent I am on farmers, grocery workers, and everyone in the food system. The vast majority of the foods sold in the large food chains and online are in one world, word, unsustainable. Later in the program, we're going to be talking with uh, Teresa for the Executive Director of the Sustainable Farming Association of Minnesota. Um, the Sustainable Farming Association, along with the Minnesota Farmers Union and the Land Stewardship Project, um, conducted a steward study, and they released the study um, this week. And it showed that only 17% of the uh, surveyed land, um, land stock producers that they surveyed said there was adequate um, access to meat processing. And we all know with the COVID, the tragedy of millions of pigs being killed. And so what is the what are the issues behind that? And this we're going to be talking about later in the program. But first, uh, we're going to be talking about consolidation in the food system. And joining us is James M. McDonald. He is the Chief of Structure, Technology, and Productivity Branch of the USDA Economic Research Service. And he's also a professor at the Department of Agriculture and Resource Economics at the University of Maryland. Welcome to Free Food Freedom Radio. Uh, thank you, Laura. Happy to be here. Yeah, so share us a little bit of uh, your professional background. Well, I'm an economist. I have spent most of my career since 1980 uh, working at the Economic Research Service. Uh, I started off working on uh, doing research on called the agribusiness end, competition in, in meatpacking, competition in railroad transportation, things like that. And around 2000, I moved over to the farm sector side of the RS and have been doing uh, work from that side related to uh, organization and consolidation in farming in the U.S. So you have your a new um, uh, article out, a research article, and it, it says that uh, simply measured, the simple measures of mean and median farm size do not show the substantial consolidation that is apparent in the data. What does that mean? Well, I'd say it reflects two things going on. There are many, many very small farms in USDA statistical accounts. We, we have a comprehensive measure of farms, and we survey lots of places, and USDA has gotten better over time at finding and counting small farms. And by that, I mean very small farms that do very little production. But at the same time, most land and most production has been shifting to much larger farms. And because of that, our, our measures of sort of average farm size aren't as informative as they should be. And as a result, we need to use some different types of measures, uh, different summaries of the data, and that's what we pursue uh, in this article that you referred to. Right. And so for one statistics is from uh, 1987 to 2017, that over that 30-year period, there was a four-fold increase in the number of farms with at least 10,000 acres of croplands. That's correct. 
uh, a substantial, there's a, a shift both of production to what I would call larger farms, two, three, four thousand acres for field crops, as well as a rapid growth and emergence of very large operations, 10,000, even 20 to 25,000 acres. That's right. And so, and what is particularly sad, or seems kind of sad, is that the number of farms operating from that 100 to 999 acres fell by about half from 1987 to 2017? That's correct. And I think, you know, for anybody living out in farm country, you can kind of see that. It is much more difficult to keep a, uh, what I would call a small or mid-sized commercial farming operation going. Uh, that that's a real challenge, and, uh, and and that's of course related to that statistic we mentioned earlier of really a shift of production and um, acreage to much larger operations. That's true. But when some of the information gets out in the public, it's still like we still have a lot of farms. That that's kind of what you've been. That's what you're trying to point out in this journal. That that this 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 that's, fact is not out there as much as it could be. Well, that's true. There, there are still many, many farms. It's not like auto manufacturing or computer manufacturing or something like that. In most, most commodity sectors in agriculture, uh, even though they're much larger farms, there are still very many farms in each of those places. Far fewer commercial farms than we had perhaps uh, 20 and 30 years ago, but still quite a few of them. Okay, and then uh, talk about the because uh, we'll be talking about this more, more on the later later part of the show with the Sustainable Farming Association. But talk about the consolidation and the meatpacking industry and a, a little bit of that background. Well, that's gone on for quite a while since back in the 1980s, and that was some work I, I was doing back in the the 90s after it happened. Uh, through the 1980s, there is just a dramatic shift towards a much more highly concentrated meatpacking industry. Far fewer uh, firms and plants, but much larger plants. And I think that came about, there are two major driving forces that went on. One was I think people did realize uh, the possibility of realizing economies of scale from larger plants if you could get large volumes of Kalanox moving through those plants. Secondly, there was a series of bruising labor battles in the early 1980s. Uh, at, up until that point, larger plants paid higher wages. Uh, they had higher union-protected wages. After a series of labor battles, those higher wages in large plants were, uh, were driven down. As a result of that, larger plants now had substantial cost advantages over smaller plants, both from not having to have to pay the wage premiums and from technological scale economies. Relatedly, the industry, hogs and cattle, uh, found ways to form tighter contractual relationships with uh, feedlots and hog growers and others to assure themselves of large and steady flows of animals through those plants, which would keep the plants operating efficiently. Now, the result where we're at today is that we have a relatively small number of, of plants. In cattle, there's really just a dozen plants that account for perhaps 50 to 60% of all slaughter. And it's not many more in hogs. So we've got a low-cost but highly centralized industry for handling uh, cattle and hogs, and to a lesser extent, poultry. And what... 
Okay, so is there a problem with that highly concentrated industry, or is this? Well, I think it's clear that you do realize lower cost, you get lower meat prices. Uh, they, they are more efficient, they're lower cost than, uh, than those plants were, so there are some advantages to consumers from that. In current years, the current days with COVID, there are risks that we obviously ran into in April uh, as disease spread through those plants, and you lose a few plants, and all of a sudden slaughter volumes are down sharply. Uh, we're killing hogs back on farms. Uh, we have meat shortages at um, supermarkets. Now, the surprising thing to me is the industry, at least in terms of slaughter numbers, turned around very quickly. So we, we had a great decline for four weeks in April, and then after about five weeks, we're back about to where we were last year for volumes. Now, that's leaving aside the ongoing uh, arguments discussion and real human uh, damage, I think, from trying to manage uh, COVID in those plants, right? But we did, we do have risks from having such a centralized uh, production system. There are ongoing arguments over whether those meatpacking plants also have uh, monopsony power, that is, whether they're able to force prices down for the animals they buy. Uh, I must say that is a it's a controversial argument among professional economists who look at it. It is attracting more and more attention in the political arena. Uh, I think we may be likely to see uh, some political challenges going on there, uh, particularly after the election. Um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so I look at, um, I mean, I, I believe that life is relational. And what is the economy for? It's it's to live. It's to raise kids and to enjoy life. And, and, and we're kind of all caught in the system right now that, to me, doesn't meet um, my needs and or our society's needs. But I know, I mean, just to look at some of these facts is quite startling. Like the midpoint milk cow herd size increased from 80 cows in 1987 to over 1,300 in 2017. Yeah, and that's something particularly important as you'll think about it for Minnesota. Let me just go back to what that means. When I say the midpoint, I say it, that is the herd size at which half of all cows were on in larger herds, and half of all cows in the country were on smaller herds. So in 1987, that midpoint was 80. Half of all the dairy cows in the country were in herds of larger than 80, and half were in herds of smaller than 80 cows. And you could see certainly throughout Minnesota and Wisconsin, and those are, yeah, 80 was a relatively large herd. There are many, many small commercial farms. Dairy has undergone a much more striking type of consolidation than almost any other agricultural industry. We've had a continuing powerful shift towards much larger uh, dairy operations. So that today that midpoint is around 1,300. That is half of all the cows in the country are on uh, in herds of 1,300 or more. And there are many farms with uh, 3,000, 5,000, or 10,000 head. That is the really striking change that has been going on in dairy. I think for anybody that grew up in the upper Midwest or northeastern dairy areas, um, it is pretty stressful because many of those old dairy valleys with those pretty pastures that you see are really not there anymore. Um, you so know, James, we're going to take a break and, and we're going to come back in just a few minutes. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950.
Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we plan to nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Headline, and I want to thank uh, James McDonald. Um, he is the Chief Structure of Technology and Productivity Branch at the USDA's Economic Research Service and a professor at the Department of Agriculture and Resource Economics at the University of Maryland. And his, uh, you know, some of the details from that report from uh, that was released this last week um, from 1987 to 2017, over that 30-year period, there was a four-fold increase in the number of farms with at least 10,000 acres of cropland. Um, on average, those farms are now 15,000 acres. And sadly, during that same time period, the number of farms operating between the 100 and 999 acres fell by over half. So this consolidation in the farming system um is I, I think it's something – I feel like it's been a tragedy because on, on so many levels, I feel like it's been a tragedy because it's sort of like we've losing this connection that we have with the farm and with the food system. Um, and another one of the details from his report is that the midpoint milk cow herd size um, increased from, an, um, from 80 cows in 1987 to 1,300 cows in 2016. And I think another word for that type of farm system is unsustainable. And so how do we switch to a sustainable food system? And our guest joining us right now is um, somebody um, who's been working on that for a long time, uh, the Sustainable Farming Association of Minnesota Executive Director, Teresa Caveney. Um, hi, welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, and so there's a survey out. Uh, it was a collaboration of the Minnesota Farmers Union, the Land Stewardship Project, and the Sustainable Farming Association. Tell us about that survey. Sure. It also included MISA, the Minnesota Institute for Sustainable Agriculture, as well as the um, uh, Minnesota Farmers Market Association. And we essentially had been hearing as COVID set in that a couple of things were happening that local meat processors were basically filled up and that farmers who typically direct market their meat or sell to local buyers, if you will, um, were actually having an increase in demand. So we wanted to know how was COVID affecting our local livestock producers. So we surveyed our members. Typically our members, and that's of all of the groups, are smaller farmers. They do more by way of uh, sustainable food production and direct marketing or selling in CSAs or shares and so forth. Uh, so it was, the survey that we conducted was a slice of the livestock producers in Minnesota, but certainly not representative of all livestock production. And we found some interesting things. One, we found that the majority reported that they actually, 64 said that, 64% said that processing was inadequate for their business, but that that was a problem even before the pandemic. Um, 17% reported that they did have adequate access, but the general thrust of the survey, which we conducted from May 15th to the 26th, is that there simply wasn't enough meat processing capacity. Um, we found that 65% had an increase in demand for their products, and we believe that COVID has 
elevated the importance of local food production, whether it's fruits, vegetables, whether it's um, meat, whether it's poultry. And we think in part this is due to an understanding of food safety or a greater appreciation of food that is produced using less chemicals or that is produced locally. We also know that when the meatpacking plants closed due to worker safety issues, that it was a disruption in supply and that it ended up forcing basically some shortages or less available meats. So we believe that the opportunity exists for more local meat production, and we have been working with the Department of Agriculture to promote some various programs to help get more local processing so that people have greater options and so that there's more community development. Essentially what we would like to see is a public investment in local livestock production in Minnesota. One thing that we are encouraging our members to do is to form what we call a commitment relationship with their local meat processor rather than a convenience relationship where I might go in because I have to butcher something right now or because my ability to sell to one of the major marketers is gone due to COVID. So we really encourage producers to work with their local processor, get their dates for processing fixed, and figure out a production schedule that doesn't just meet their needs, but that also can be responsive to what the processor's needs are and what the consumer's needs are. So do you know what the history of the meat processing was? Decades ago, did we have a lot of small meat processors? We had small and mid-sized meat processors, but in the same time frames that you were using to describe uh, the consolidation of farms, we also saw consolidation in the meat packing industry so that today four meat packers control over 80% of the slaughter capacity. And what that means is that there are fewer options for farmers to sell their product, and it also means some major questions being raised about whether antitrust enforcement is taking place at the federal level. And there have been antitrust enforcement actions over the years as well. Some states' attorneys general have looked over the years at what they can do under their own laws to try to reduce that concentration and make for more open and fair markets. Right. So, yes, processing has greatly concentrated. And so some of the mid-sized meat slaughter uh, operations in Minnesota, they no longer exist. And, and Keith Ellison is one um, working on that antitrust right now. Well, he has, when we have met with him, he has made his commitment to look at antitrust enforcement. I know that other states' attorney generals over the years have done that. I actually don't know right at present Mm -hmm. what that has yielded. Okay. So uh, why why do we want to have um, small local farms and small um, independent processors? Well, a few reasons. I think we saw the fragility of our food supply this spring as a result of COVID. The meat processing plants have been sped up over the years to increase production, and that has meant more workers working in 
uh, conditions where they're close together and where they're too close to properly social, social distance and be protected for COVID. So when the president ordered the processing plants to open, his order didn't include any requirements for health and safety. Now, we're told that the plants did try to ensure that, and we spoke with state officials about whether they would be able to in any way protect the workers. But the first question or the first um, reason that we want to ensure some measure of local production is for the safety of the workers along the food chain. And I should add that these are not people who are well paid. We believe the best food system produces a high quality product compensates a farmer. So, Teresa, we're going to need to take a break. We're going to take a break, and we're going to come back with what's the best food system and how do we make it happen. So you're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950. Food Freedom Radio, where we plant and nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Headline, and on the phone with us is uh, Teresa Kevini from uh, the um, Sustainable Farming Association of Minnesota. And when we went to break, we were talking about um, the importance of small independent farms and and why 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 that's so important. Well, part of it is they support rural communities, and if you look at our rural communities today, many of them are struggling. They are struggling with not being able to have a good workforce, whether that's for health care, whether that's for um, some of the construction and trades. Small family farmers spend on Main Street. They buy their supplies on Main Street. Their kids go to local schools. And we've seen time after time after time school consolidation and kind of the lack of a budding, growing workforce in rural Minnesota By having more family farmers, we have a lot more people who can populate rural communities and, moreover, who can play the important leadership roles that really make our democracy work. So that's the first thing. The quality of food and food safety and nutrition is another reason why local food production is important. As the food industries have become more consolidated, the nutritional value of food has dramatically changed and decreased. And that also includes having more processed and more, uh, uh, I'll just say more highly processed food that has less nutritional value and that's actually not as good for us as less processed fresh fruits, vegetables, grains from the farm, and in particular those that use less chemical use. Another reason for family farms is meat. There's a big debate today about whether the factory feedlots that we see is a viable and sustainable way to produce meat. We don't think that's the viable way. We think repopulating the landscape using sustainable meat production practices and rotational grazing, which mimics the landscape of 200 years ago, is the better way. And the product that is the result is a great product, and it's one that's nutritionally more sound. So livestock production is part of a whole regenerative system of agriculture when included with the use of other soil health practices, such as use of cover crops, planting more diverse species, planting more perennials, deepening the root system, minimizing soil disturbances. 
Adding livestock to the landscape is another soil health principle that accelerates the benefits of the others that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. So we'd like to see more decentralized managed grazing, and that in turn would result in more local protein, meat-based protein that's produced. And in turn, we're seeing that farmers who had meat supplies during COVID actually did better in that they didn't lose market share. Very few did. They increased their markets. But the concern is long-term, will they have access to meat processing capacity? Right. The farmers who had to euthanize were those that had contracts with the larger facilities. Well, the euthanize, the fact that so many life forms were killed, uh, not to feed people, but just because of uh, of the economic system. I know it's heart-wrenching for a lot of people, but it shines a light on the entire system. And it, it gets down to, for, for me, it's like, what is the economy for? What is it that we want? And sustainability is so important. Here's, here's a um, quote from an um, article, article by Otto Schwarmer in Medium. It said, um, if all uh, global pasture was managed according to regenerative models, an additional 70% of current CO2 emissions might be sequestered. In other words, regenerative organic message, methods of farming have the potential to sequester up to 100% of current annual CO2 emissions globally. Well, in uh, in livestock that are raised using managed grazing and sustainable farming principles can be a contributor to the solution. Right now, huge feedlots or non-managed livestock in a grazing system that is not using soil health principles that's contributing to climate change. Right, and I know... So we think agriculture done well heals. Right. And that, to me, includes healing our climate crisis. Yes, it does. And I know, um, uh, obviously, uh, some people say, uh, and they have a point, that a vegan diet is the best for the climate. But if you're eating a vegan diet and it's bought by these companies that own the own 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 the trademarks and are using a lot of genetic modified which most of the um, vegan products in the industrial food market also carry some of those weights and and the evidence is really strong that you need animals on the land is um, is a carbon sink am I saying that in a way that's right or could I say that a little bit better um I don't know what the science is right now on plant-based protein compared to animal protein. We have talked to dietitians and researchers. We certainly know that livestock that is incorporated into the landscape using soil health practices is a huge improvement both environmentally and for the producer's bottom line. And we know that the product that they're eating is a sound product. So, uh, but I can't speak yeah. with authority on what plant-based proteins nutritional value is. Yeah, um, I, but I, I certainly had those conversations I, with well, I know, and family members and others who are like, "No, I want to solve climate the climate crisis. I'm going to be a vegan." Well, yes, that that is one way if you are producing or purchasing products that you know 
indeed are produced using cell health practices. But you don't know that necessarily unless you're very attentive to watching labels. Right. And, you know, one thing I've been thinking a lot is everything is complicated. But another word for that everything is complicated is everything's also eloquent. You know, it's just, it is meant to be complicated in a way. And I'm really pleased that Dr. Rattan Law is now the food prize recipient because he's done a lot of work on the power of um, sequestering carbon in the soil. And um, But I want to back up a little bit and just give us a little bit about the background of the Sustainable Farming um, Association. Sure. And I also wanted to uh, speak to your point about what is our agricultural system for. Um, SFA is in its 30th year. We are dedicated to encouraging farmers to use sustainable farming practices that employ uh, environmental stewardship, economic resilience, and that work to build strong and diverse communities. And we do that mainly through farmer-to-farmer networking, education, research, and innovation. Our moniker is Agriculture Done Well Heals. We have three main projects. One is our soil health project that really leans heavily on teaching farmers how to be good stewards and that teach farmers how to incorporate livestock, how to use grazing dairies as an alternative. Um, Another program, which is somewhat, it's related to soil health, is silvopasture. This is a new project that teaches farmers how to properly assess their property and to incorporate managed grazing and forages in a wooded system, utilizing sustainable and regenerative practices. And then we do work on teaching some specific crop production, right now garlic and asparagus, how to produce A1 uh, premium Minnesota asparagus and garlic how do you market it, and also how to ensure weed control and pest management. We also do leadership development, and we partner with a number of other groups on projects. Our biggest one right now is we're convening groups on the heels of COVID to look at our local food system and to try to identify ways to help make it more resilient. And that also includes are there options for farmers markets and other strategies so that they too can come more, become more resilient. To your point about the overall food system, what is the goal? We contend that the goal should be to produce a high quality, nutritionally based product that ensures a cost of production, fair market value price to the farmer, and that ensures that the processing worker and the worker in the store is paid a good wage and good compensation so that by the time it ends up on the shelf, people all along the food chain are receiving their their fair compensation, if you will. Will that increase the cost of food? It may, but the value of building community, ensuring a sustainable system, and having better food at the end um, to us is a much higher and more important goal than producing the most amount at the cheapest amount 
on the backs of the farmers and the workers and the grocery people. You know, I started this show talking about um, going out and grabbing that one of my um, eggplants and making a quick little um, eggplant dish. And there's something really sacred about um, eating and food and, and that we've all sort of monetized it. It's sort of added to a dehumanization. And so going back to farming is about coming alive to, um, to our, our whole selves in some ways. Well, we've seen um, an uptick in the number of our members who are inquiring about gardening. We definitely have seen an increased expression of interest in the metro area for better food production. A new networking group of SFAs formed about a year and a half ago called the Metro Growers Group, and that's coordinated by a great person, Carl Hawkinson, and it's goal is to really teach people how to be the best backyard gardeners or community gardeners that they can be um, teaching with sustainable methods because it increases people's relationship to the land and their relationship to the out of doors overall. Yeah. And then and I would say it also places a much higher value on that eggplant. Yeah, and and I, I I actually the whole economy stuff. I mean, the economy is not following the rules. It says it follows. I talked to someone that's like read the Economist magazine cover to cover for the last thirty years, and it's like you know, economic thinking really is ready for a rework because no one really understands it. It's just not working the way it, it, it is supposed to be. And if we can somehow come come to be buying and selling our food from each other and eating, I mean really kind of like, what else do we need to do as animals? <laughs> I mean, we need shelter and a few other things. But, um, you know, I, I want to jump here again to uh, the Garlic Festival because I know you, so you've had to do some pivoting this year. Um, uh, how, are, how are you handling that? Well, uh, we're actually doing a particular garlic market that's online and all of – I don't honestly know uh, all of the details except that those members of ours who are garlic producers who have applied are able to sell on our online directory. So if you go to ssa-mn.org to our garlic page, you can access the online garlic sale. A number of our members who are garlic producers who actually sell a lot of their production at the Garlic Festival are basically selling online or using other methods like farmer's markets to sell. So, Teresa, we're going to take another break, and we're going to come back in just a few minutes. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950. And here I go. We're flying out like endless rain into a paper cup. They slither wildly as they slip away across the universe. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, um, where we plan to nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, and joining us is the Executive Director of the Sustainable Farming Association of Minnesota, uh, Teresa Caveney. Um, and Teresa, you wanted to make sure you talked about some of the events you have coming up. Sure. Uh, you had asked about how our operations have changed due to COVID, and in following some of the state and federal guidance, we've had to reconfigure our offerings to have fewer people and to use social distancing and masks. So we are offering a series of four fencing workshops 
which require a small number of people now, because... I am to get the, joking, joking. So fencing is not taking swords out and fencing. <laughs> no, how to use high, uh, basically new fencing technology for any kind of livestock species, whether we're talking sheep, goats, cattle, uh, hogs. And so we're doing four different livestock workshops beginning on August 20th in different parts of the state. And the details of that can be found on our website, but one will be in Sox Center. Um, that one actually will be looking at fencing in a sobo pasture system. Another is in Villard, which looks at fencing in a managed grazing system. We've got one down in Wabasha in October that looks at fencing um, also using managed grazing um, with beef cattle. So we've got um, those offerings coming up, and because we're limiting registration, we encourage people to register online and basically first come, first serve. And then we have three workshops on solo pasture. The first one is August 3rd in Becker. And, again, to keep um, the numbers down, registration is limited. And the next, and that Silbo Pasture workshop really looks at an oak savanna restoration program. We've got mm-hmm. another one August 11th, or excuse me, August 12th in Brainerd, and August 13th down in Wabasha. And then later in the year, we'll be producing a film on Silbo Pasturing, and we'll be doing some workshops on soil, uh, some online workshops on soil health and Silbo Pasture. And that's that's wonderful. We are contemplating what our twenty twenty programming is or twenty twenty one programming is looking like, and beginning to plan that using a mix of in person and uh, socially distanced and online, and it's really opening up some opportunities for creativity. We have a new podcast program called Dirt Rich which is very exciting. We have every two weeks a new podcast that comes out, and we're doing a lot of online uh, videos that basically feature a lot of different types of sustainable farming practices. Well, and this is just such a hopeful sign because, again, I'm going to report, repeat some of the statistics from that we shared early in the program from uh, Jane McDonald's new report. But, um, you know, the average herd, si- herd size of cows went from 80 cows to 1,300 over a 30-year period. Swine uh, midpoint rose more than 44 consolidations. So we've seen this huge trend in the last several decades towards these mega and large farms. And a lot of moral problems with that. I mean, let's, let's, the, the condition, I don't want to say the condition of animals, but the condition of animals are so horrific in those large factory farms and the environmental cost. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's no meat production because you can move to these other systems where animals are on the farm and it, it's, it's regenerative. Regenerative also means that the animal is healthier and happier. And we have seen studies and have been part of studies that show that one of the cost savings in regenerative practices is lower vet bills, in particular with dairy, because the animal, the cow in this case, the ruminant handles forage better than it handles corn, for example. And, yeah, we were part of a, a study that showed, well, what are the cost differences between 
a grazing dairy and a conventional dairy, and that was the biggest. So more grazing dairies would be great for rural Minnesota. It'd be great for our health and well-being. But one of the main things that's limiting it, and this is what your um, the news re- this is what came out this week, is a farmer survey that the lack of local meat processing is limiting farm businesses and underscoring the needs for a sustained investment. So we have about three more minutes. Talk to us about what is needed now. Thanks for asking that. On the farmer side, we I kind of spoke to this earlier. We encourage farmers to do a good job building a relationship with their local processor and to really be strategic in their own production and marketing because that can make a difference as to whether they have good access or bad access to processing in a timely manner. In terms of public investment, We're supportive of what the Ag Department announced in April as a result of COVID, greater investment in the plants that are um, currently licensed as equal to, uh, to expand, or for the plants that are uh, not equal to, but to move up to custom exempt to basically increase their operation to be equal to. The Ag Department has grants and low-interest loans targeting that to increase investment. So, Teresa, I'm not quite understanding what that equal to means. Sure. I'm sorry. Equal to is a state inspection label that says our state inspection is equal to the federal inspection. Now, you can't sell that meat across state lines, but you can sell that meat elsewhere in within the state, and it means that our state, that, that those animals that are processed in equal to facilities are operating under the same as though it's federal inspection. It's equal to federal inspection, but it's, but it is only state inspection. So uh, last two minutes, I mean, you also have something on your website about um, community and food aid in the age of COVID. Yes. Thank you for noticing that. Um, one of our objectives has been to make sure that farmers are aware of the programs that they can apply for one being the Paycheck Protection Program. We just, um, with several other organizations led by the Minnesota Institute for Sustainable Agriculture and University of Minnesota Extension, um, had a couple of workshops uh, on how to apply for PPP. Uh, we hope to do a subsequent workshop later this month on CFAP, um, the COVID, um, oh, geez, I'm, I'm no. forgetting what CFAP stands for. And then on the IDLE program so that people know what these programs are and how they can apply and assess whether these programs fit for them. Because we think that lack of an understanding of the programs and in the case of PPP, quick rollout the first time has caused farmers to not be as ready to apply. Um, so, well, Teresa, we're now down to the end. I uh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, uh, you're with the Sustainable Farming Association of Minnesota, and the website is, what's your website? SFA-MN.org. Again, thank you so much for joining us today, and uh, thanks earlier to jo- James McDonald uh, for joining us as well. And thank you for listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota.